If you were asked to describe the church, I wonder what you would say. If someone bowed you up in the street and said, what is the church? What answer uh, would you give them? Well, one of the church is one of those difficult concepts to get our heads around. Uh, one of the reasons I think for this is that over the centuries, uh, all of us have slipped into the thinking uh, that our world has that the church is the building that we sit in this morning. But when we think like that, as far as the Bible is concerned, we've just heard Paul write to a church, actually writes to a series of churches, and buildings are not mentioned once in what he writes. Uh, As far as the Bible is concerned, when we think that church is just a building, we have completely missed the point, because church is far more than just buildings, as fancy and as beautiful uh, as they might be. Uh, This is because as far as God is concerned, uh, the church is a group of people. In fact, as far as buildings go, as far as God's word is concerned, uh, this place that we're meeting in today with the lovely Christmas lights and the lovely windows is simply a shelter to keep us warm, dry and not windswept, which is good in winter, isn't it? Amen. Absolutely. Now, that might sound scandalous to you, but it's actually true from the scriptures. The church is a group of people, not fancy architecture. But if the church is people, then what does it look like? What does the church look like? How would you describe it? What does it look like in practice? Well, as we come to our curious passage for today, uh, we actually need to get that answer to that question right. Because without recognising the people that make up God's church, the temptation is just to gloss over the long list of names that we find at the end of Romans. It also gives us the temptation to gloss over every list of names that we find in the Bible, though they are very, very important. If we take our time and see everything in the context of why every member of the church is important... Uh, then what we'll see is that our passage for today will be of great encouragement to us because it shows us what the church looks like. But first we need to remind ourselves about what the church is. Now, first thing, we need to understand that the church is a group of people who have been set apart by God. Uh, After Jesus' death for sin, this being set apart comes in the form of us trusting him Though the idea goes right back to the Old Testament. Uh, Briefly, the idea is set out very clearly in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, when God speaks to Moses during the time when the Israelites were imprisoned uh, in Egypt. God said this, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, these, uh, very, this very short verse uh, shows us uh, God affirm, uh, reaffirming that he has chosen them as his people. Uh, he chosen them right back at the very beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, you could argue that it happens earlier than that as well. But here we see God reaffirming that he had chosen a people for himself. And because of that, 
He was going to rescue them from Egypt. But for our question today, what we see here is the almighty God working to maintain a distinct group of people who he hoped would remain faithful to him. He expects them to be distinct from all the other nations around them. He expects them to live the way he's told them to live. In Exodus 6, we see God, even though in its Old Testament context, it's a little bit difficult for us to get our heads around. In Exodus chapter 6, what we see is God working to create and maintain his church, a distinct group of people that were his. And the reality of that church was that it was an exclusive group of people, meaning that they were, apart from a few exceptions, all from one nation, which... uh, They had the same history. They had the same customs. You could even say that they were all from the same family. They're all descendants of Abraham. They're all brothers and sisters and cousins and grandparents and aunties and uncles. They're all descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, we know that from looking at Romans, uh, that this commonality is not present in the same way anymore in God's church, is it? Because after Jesus, instead of all of us being from the one group of people, having the same customs and history, and now we have Jesus as our point of similarity between believers because the door has been flung open wide as salvation is on offer to everybody. But firstly, we learn here that the church is a group who have been set apart by God. He's chosen them, he has saved them, and he wants us to be distinct from the rest of the world. Which means that secondly, it's God's intention that this distinct group of people now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, will include people from all different backgrounds. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and 22 tells us this. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself. As the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. Friends, do you understand what good news this passage is? Uh, It tells us that us Gentiles without Jesus would be cut off from God. And the body of believers which God has created. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has created a new people made up of all kinds of different people. And we're not to ignore our differences, pretending to be the same. But our differences are a reminder that Jesus accepts anybody who comes to him, regardless of their history or anything else. This means that while many of us may never have crossed paths with some of our other brothers and sisters because of Jesus, we now call each other brother and sister. Secondly, the church is made up of all kinds of different people. Though thirdly, we need to reflect as well, if God has created a people and that that group of people is made up of all kinds of different people, What should our attitude be to this group that God has created? Uh, 
Well, in the New Testament, it tells us pretty plainly that believers in Jesus' death for sin will participate in their local church, the local gathering of believers. In terms of priorities, Christians should place spending time in fellowship with other believers where on the list of priorities, do you think? Right up the top. Only giving it up for a very good reason. And so thirdly, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 instructs us to do this. Consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, the reality is that Christ's death on the cross has brought about a new group of people, a people from all walks of life and all different stages of life. It's a group of people who would probably never be seen together if it wasn't for faith in Jesus uniting us. This is the miracle of God's church and it is something that we should cherish. The church is a gift to God's people are created as a means for all of us to be cared for spiritually. This is why the writer of the Hebrews tells us not to give up meeting together because our spiritual health depends on it. We can't go through the Christian life on our own. The reality is that I've always found the people that are struggling the most in their faith are usually the ones who have started to put other things higher on their list of priorities. And in doing so, they begin to opt out of the community of believers that God has blessed them with. Do you see how it works? If you don't take advantage of the gifts that God has given you, is it any wonder that you suffer because of it? Friends, the church is a gift from God. It is a people set apart by God who he would die for to protect. Made up of all kinds of people who gladly and as a matter of priority participate in the loving fellowship that God has given us. This is what the church is and it's important to remember this because as we come to Romans 16 today, we're going to see these things play out. As Paul takes a roll call of the church in Rome, what we're going to see is a group of saved people who for the most part look and sound like they would never be seen together. Yet as a practical demonstration of the gospel, they were saved and loved by God. They were all from all kinds of different backgrounds. That what we're going to see today is that they were completely and totally committed to each other. So let's meet some of Paul's friends. Though before we meet them, uh, we really should be surprised that such a list appears in Romans at all. Because Paul had never visited there before. Uh, It looks like Christianity first travelled to Rome and not at the result of a huge missionary journey by one of the apostles, but instead as a result of the preaching of Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2. Uh, Back at that event in Acts chapter 2, there were people from everywhere. I won't run through the list of cities because you've had enough names this morning. But specifically we're told in verse 10 of Acts chapter 2, that present at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, there were people from Rome. And so it looks like from that point, 
There were Christians in Rome. They'd come to Jerusalem, they'd heard the gospel, and they'd gone back to Rome as converted people. But that doesn't solve the problem that Paul didn't actually know any of them. He had never been to Rome before. And so to fix this problem, we travel on in time to the passage that Stephen read for us, to a time when Paul was visiting the Corinthians in Corinth. Uh, Because in Acts chapter 18, we're told that when Paul was visiting Corinth, there was a significant political issue in Rome. This is what we read uh, in verse Uh, 1 of Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogues trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. What does this passage tell us? Well, it says that in God's timing, just as Paul was in Corinth, a huge influx of believers from Rome flooded the city. As Paul taught about the kingdom of God and salvation in Jesus, it seems most likely that as these believers from Rome entered the city, they sought out faithful gospel teaching and so Paul came to know them and have great affection for them. Which explains the tone of Romans, doesn't it? At least the last part of Romans, where Paul pours out his soul to them, wanting them to get along with each other and to rely upon Jesus for salvation. This is because they were a group of people for whom Paul had experienced intense yet fleeting fellowship. Last week we learned that he longed to visit them so that he could enjoy that fellowship once more. This is how Paul knows the Christians in Rome because when he was in Corinth, they all flooded the city and he got to know them very well in a very short amount of time. But in the meantime, he would send them a letter. That's what we have in Romans. And this is where we come to at the beginning of our passage for today in chapter 16 in verses 1 and 2. Where when we write letters, we generally put all of the logistical information at the beginning of our letters. Back then, they put all that kind of information at the end. And so as this letter comes to a close, Paul introduces us to the person who was going to deliver the letter to Rome. And so we're introduced to a woman named Phoebe. Paul tells us that she is a faithful servant. She's a practical person who used her spiritual and financial gifts to be a blessing to the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul gives us the indication that she was a significant person in leadership in the church in the Greek coastal port of Senecra. Uh, Corinth is kind of here and Senecra is here. There's a big body of water here and there's a big body of water here. And so that's where Paul was and that's where she was. She was the one who was to deliver the letter to the church in Rome. And Paul's instruction is that even though she is probably a Greek, just like Paul has already mentioned in the ending parts of Romans, even though that she was probably a Greek, the Jews in Rome, Paul is very clear, isn't he, were to accept her and show her hospitality. He wants them to treat her as a sister 
in Christ. That's Phoebe. But who are the other people that Paul knew in Rome? Well, let's take a quick tour of who made up the church there. Uh, We're going to run through the list of names and I'll tell you a little bit about each of the people. In verses 3 and 4, we meet a married couple called Priscilla and Aquila. We've met them in Acts chapter 18 already. They were a married couple who had met Paul in Corinth. Paul worked for them in Corinth in order to support his ministry there. They were a couple who were on fire for the gospel. They were not in formal ministry like Paul was, but they were not any less committed to people hearing the gospel and becoming saved. After Corinth, we're told that they followed Paul to Ephesus, where they continued to be a blessing. They continued to minister. Even though they were considered lay people in the church, they were highly effective. Through their house church movement, they converted many people, one of them being Apollos, who would go on to be one of the most effective defenders of the Christian faith in the empire after the apostles had been killed. As Paul continues in verse 5, we're told that they had set up a home church upon their return to Rome and that their dear, uh, there is a dear friend who was part of it called Epinetus. And nowhere else in the New Testament is Epinetus found, though Paul gives away some of his history uh, in, the pas- in the passage. Uh, the way the Greek is constructed, Epinetus probably became a follower through Priscilla and Aquila's home ministry when they followed Paul to Ephesus. Though even more special is the fact that he was their first convert when they got there. And knowing this, you can understand why they had remained close to him. We also meet a woman called Mary. And Paul makes it clear that while her name was very common, as she had worked very hard in her service of the church in Rome. In the original language, her work for the church is literally translated as one being one of constant, overwhelming and exhausting effort. That was Mary. Paul specifically highlights two more people, Andronicus and Junia. They were probably a married Greek couple. Though what Paul points out is that they had suffered greatly for the gospel. These two were probably part of the 72 people that Jesus sends out to preach the gospel in Luke chapter 10. Either way, their suffering and gospel drive had made them well known among the apostles. And then we meet Ampelatus and Urbanus, who were almost certainly slaves. Though despite their low standing in society, they were almost certainly well loved and well known among the community of believers. We also meet Stachys who we know almost nothing about. He was probably a slave as well. Uh, I don't know that anyone would be picking his name for one of their children either. We don't know anything about him. We meet Apelles, who was a man who had endured significant troubles for his faith, uh, and he was an example and encouragement to the believers in Rome because of his commitment to Jesus under fire. Then in verse 10 B, the second half of verse 10, we're told about the household of Aristobulus. Now, here, Aristobulus is not addressed directly, and so it's assumed that he was either not a believer or he could also have been dead at this point. 
Uh, either is a possibility, though death is a real one, because Aristobulus was the brother of King Herod the Great, who was dead by the time Romans was written. Regardless, Paul sends greetings to the Christians who were in his household. Out of his household, Paul specifically mentions a man called Herodian, who was a free man who was in service of the Herods. Next, we're told about the household of Narcissus, which follows a similar pattern to the last household. Narcissus served under Emperor Claudius and had actually committed suicide just before Romans was written. But similar to the household of Aristobulus, the house of Narcissus had believing slaves in it. And so Paul wanted them to know that he appreciated them and was thinking of them. The next few couple of names are fun because we're introduced to a series of women who were in the church in Rome. At first, we meet two sisters called Tryphena and Tryphosa. Literally, their names mean delicate and dainty. That's what their names mean. Though Paul makes it very clear that as these two sisters, they were not princesses when it came to God's church and serving it. Because despite what their name suggested, they were hard workers for the gospel and the church community. We also meet Persis, a woman who, just like Tryphena and Tryphosa, worked very hard in helping the gospel go out and who was a loved sister in the Lord to many of the believers. And then we meet Rufus and his mum. I love Rufus and his mum. Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene, who was the man who carried the cross of Jesus in Mark 15. Though more importantly, he and his mum were also believers, and Paul clearly loves them, doesn't he? Then finally, we're introduced to two small home churches which were probably run by slaves. One looks like it was run by a bunch of single people in verse 14, and then in verse 15, we're told that the other was run by a married couple called Philogius and Julia, along with two of their kids and a whole bunch of other people that Paul doesn't name. Now, this is some group of people, don't you think? I'm a bit surprised that I got all their names right, to be honest. All these people were known to Paul personally or by reputation, and he tells us in this that every single one of them was a valued individual and loved deeply by God and the church. It should not surprise us then what he asked them to do in verse 16. Because he quite simply says that they should welcome each other. Uh, In the makeup of the list of names, it seems like even though there was a church in Rome, it was made up of lots of smaller home churches. And Paul's very practical in his application to them. Greet one another. Uh, In the customs of the time and place that they were uh, at, where they were, he asked them to greet each other with a holy kiss which in the times of COVID terrifies us, doesn't it? Even otherwise, it kind of terrifies us as well. But the lesson is for us that though that was how it looked like back then, we should all be equally committed to loving and warm fellowship with each other just like they were. Paul also sends greetings from all the other Christian churches, showing us that this love and fellowship was not just between Rome and Rome or Paul and Rome, 
because all the other churches spread across the Mediterranean cared deeply for each other and they took a keen interest in each other's welfare. This meant that they never missed an opportunity to build and maintain fellowship, even when distance was certainly an issue when you could only write letters to people. So what do we see in this funny passage, which is mostly just a list of names? Well, God's word tells us that the church is a people set apart by God, brought together by the blood of Jesus, made up of all different kinds of people who fellowship and are committed to fellowship with one another. And very simply, this is one of those passages which shows it to us in action, doesn't it? Though there are three things that we learn from this list. Firstly, in this list, there are gospel partners from all different walks of life with lots of different gifts, showing us that Paul and no minister should ever think that they can do the work on their own. Paul is not a lone ranger, is he? Yes, he's the one who we know about, but there's lots of other people working very hard. Ministry and evangelism is a team sport and we all need to play our part. Secondly, we would be wrong to miss the significance of the nine women that show up in this list, which shows us how important all people are in the ministry of the church. Thirdly, it shows us that even though this list includes prominent business people, people involved in politics to some degree as well, workers and slaves... Because they trust in Jesus, they are more importantly brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't they? Which means that we would go wrong to miss the application for all of us that all our fellowship with each other should be friendly and sincere, even though we come from different walks of life. Friends, despite our differences, just like the church in Rome, we are the church of the living God. If you took a stock take of the the number of people on this list, it kind of correlates pretty neatly to the number we have at church here, doesn't it? Just as they were different, we have our differences as well. And so the application is to be loving and friendly and sincere and devoted to fellowship with each other. Because we are a people set apart for God. Despite our differences, Jesus' blood has brought us together We are a small group made up of all kinds of different people, all with different histories. And from this list this morning, the passage tells us that as an expression of God's love, we should enjoy friendly and sincere fellowship with each other. Do you know why? Because that's what God wants for us. Fellowship is a gift from God. And so let's embrace it because that's what he wants for us. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for the church in Rome that existed all those many years ago. We thank you that even though that they were different in so many different ways, Jews and Greeks most prominently, but also business people, slaves, free people. Father, we pray that out of this passage that we've read this morning, that our attitude might be the one that they had, that we might be devoted to fellowship, fellowship with each other. Father, we thank you for the church. 
We thank you for our church. We thank you that it is a gift from you. Help us to be devoted to it, uh, just like the church were back then. Father, it can be very different for us. Uh, Back then, they felt like they needed each other in order to survive. But we can buy into the lie that we can do things on our own. Father, help us to rely on each other. Help us to love and serve one another. We thank you that your son came to die for us, which brought us into fellowship with you and into fellowship with each other. Help us to remember this every single day, that we can't do the Christian life alone. We need you and we need each other. Amen.